Good morning, Chillicothe Baptist. My name is Dan. I'm the worship pastor here. If you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. Guys, thank you, worship team. Thank you, Nick, for leading us well. And I appreciate you. It's just, I look at this team with pride because I get to serve with them each and every week. And, and when I'm able to just step back and just to sing along with the church, man, it's just such a joy. Man, to just see you guys lead so well. So thank you. And, and I, I read this quote, and I think it's helpful. I think it's meaningful. You know, you can tell the theology of a church by what they sing. You can tell if the church actually believes it by how loud they sing. And church, well done. You, you truly value the gospel. You truly delight in, in just good sound singing. So thank you, guys. So there is a legend that surrounds the Revolutionary War era, and it goes a little something like this. So there's this guy named Captain Smith, and he was leading all of the supplies. He, he was having all of the wagons travel with him and all the horses, and he was leading the supplies to the main camp. But on the way, there's this giant tree that's just fallen right in the middle of the road. And uh, they can't get the wagons around it, so they just have to go through it. So his soldiers, they just roll up their sleeves and they go to work. They start chopping away at this tree, and this is hard, hard work. Well, a few hours pass, and this rider comes up to Captain Smith and says, Hey, what's going on? And so Captain Smith explains the situation, and the rider says, Well, shouldn't you, like, help your guys or something? And the captain looks at him kind of funny. He's like, it, it tried to be very polite. And he's like, no, that's just not my job. Well, the rider got off his horse, rolled up his sleeves, and got to work. And a few hours later, tree was cleared. Well, one of the soldiers recognized the rider. The rider was none other than General George Washington. So this captain is backpedaling, man. He's like, uh, okay, um, my back was hurting. I, late night, he's trying to figure out some excuse, right, to figure out what he could say to General Washington. And before Captain Smith could even speak, George Washington looked to him and said, Sir, next time your men need help, call the commander-in-chief. That story is but a faint echo of what we're going to be studying this morning. Christian, be humble as Christ was humble. Let's read the passage, let's pray, and we'll dive in. Philippians 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess 
that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true, that it is reliable, that it is good, that we can base our life upon it. And Lord, help us to come to your word with with an open mind and open heart. And God, help us to be obedient to your word. Guide us this morning. Help us to be a church that is unified through being humble because you were humble. Guide us through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So in the first two verses of this passage, we see a call for unity, the call for unity. The Apostle Paul begins with this if-then statement, right? He says, if these characteristics are present, then go deeper in your faith. Well, the Apostle Paul knows the church at Philippi. He, he's poured his life into them. So he knows these characteristics um, are, are found in this church. Well, what are these four marks? What are these four healthy characteristics that he outlines? First, in verse 1, Apostle Paul recognizes that the church has an encouragement in Christ. An encouragement in Christ. And what he sees is the church is encouraging one another. And it's more than just the surface level stuff. Surface level stuff is nice, right? It's good to say, hey, nice haircut. Killer guitar solo. Hey, did you lose weight? Awesome, right? Like, that's good. That's nice. But he's seen more than that. He's seen a church member who's struggling, and another church member is saying, Hey, I know you're struggling this week. Here's what the Lord has taught me. Here's a reminder of the grace of Jesus, and I want to remind you and encourage you in that. Apostle Paul has seen this encouragement happening. Not only has he seen encouragement happening in the church, but he also sees the church is comforting one another from love. The church of Philippi cares for one another. So they see somebody hurting and they comfort them. And this comfort is motivated by Christ-like love. We'll talk more about motivation later on in the text. Third, he sees a participation in the Spirit. The church at Philippi is not a bunch of bench-warmer Christians, right? They have people who are active. You have people who are engaged. You have people who are serving. They're exercising the spiritual gifts God's given them. So the Apostle Paul sees with joy people teaching, people serving, people giving, people being hospitable. The Apostle Paul sees that in the church at Philippi, and he rejoices. And finally, he has one of these great catch-all phrases. He says, if there's any affection and sympathy. Well, this really just helps summarize everything. A mark of a healthy church is a church that has multi-generational love and care for one another. The Apostle Paul has seen uh, the, the people who are um, senior adults loving on and investing in the nursery. He's seen the students investing on every uh, age and every person and serving and working together and you see this intergenerational multi-generational care and this care just doesn't make sense it doesn't make sense to the outside world from from outsiders looking in they're like what on earth is going on so the apostle paul recognizes and celebrates what the lord is doing in the church at philippi have you ever like invested in someone or something and, and you see that come to fruition like you pour your life into someone and you see them grow up and you see them mature and you see them progress. 
Man, I think one of the greatest joys is being a dad. I have a five-year-old and a three-year-old. And man, they start off as like these little loafs, right? You know, like this crying, pooping loaf. It won't let you sleep, right? You're not, you're just, you're just, you're gone. Your mind, you, you can't remember anything, right? You just have this little loaf. And then, you know, a few months down the road, they start walking, but they don't really start walking. And they just kind of walk for a couple steps and they just tump over, right? They just go, right? And you just have to baby proof. That's the baby proof phase. You know, some kids are, you have to baby proof more or less, right? And then they start talking, and then there's the potty training phase and just all the different things. And eventually they turn into human beings. It's like, what? This is amazing, right? And you got there's several parents in here that are farther down the road than I am, and it, I'm looking forward to the different stages. But, but we, we look at um, these kids that are growing up, and you're pouring your heart and soul and your life into these kiddos, and they, and they start to develop and grow. And that's what the Apostle Paul is doing here. He's poured his heart and soul and life into this church. And they're developing. And he's looking at them with joy. And he says, okay, go deeper. Keep going. He's being a good dad. He's being a good coach. And he's saying, hey, keep going. Go deeper. Go deeper into the faith. So how does he encourage the church to progress? How does he encourage the church to grow? Let's look again at verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He calls the church to unity, doesn't he? And it's really interesting that he calls the church to unity. He doesn't tell the church, hey, memorize this, do this, go through this. No, what does he tell them? He says, be unified. I think it's because it just takes a depth of maturity to be unified. Because when you're, we're unified, we're saying, hey, I know all of these things, but I'm going to live out my faith with an, a, a bunch of other redeemed sinners. I'm going to have patience with them. I'm going to have grace towards them. And so there's a depth of unity. There's a depth of maturity there when we're called to unity. Well, what does unity look like? It looks like two basic things that's highlighted in this text. Number one, the church has the same love. The church has the same love. This is so important for us. It's so important for our church to have the same love for the gospel. The gospel is really the foundation and the only thing that can unify. We have amazing musicians here. They are so skillful and they serve each and every week. But great music is not going to unify this church. We have great leadership in our children's and in student ministry. And we have great volunteers who are serving each and every week to make sure the kids are safe and they're learning the Bible. But ministries cannot unify us. What we've done in the past can't unify us. We're about to get some great preaching through Pastor Kevin in the, in the weeks to come. But great preaching can't unify us. The only thing that can cross age barriers, race barriers, social, socioeconomic barriers is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that can unify us. And that's why people from all walks of life from Ross County can gather in the same building and worship. The gospel is what unifies us. And so we have to have the same love for the gospel. But 
this love for the gospel. The gospel is to be cherished. The gospel is to be shared. The, the, the gospel is to be treasured, but it's not supposed to be hoarded. A right and proper love of the gospel compels us to the same mission. It compels us to the same mission. So what is our mission? It's very clear in Matthew 28 that Jesus gives the church the command to go make disciples. That's what we're called to do. So we have the same love and rightly applied, we are supposed to have the same mission. So what does making disciples look like? That could be its own sermon, but I'll give us a 30-second synopsis. Number one, we're called to pray for people. Actively pray for our barber. Actively pray for our family member. Actively pray for our coworker or our friend. And pray that the Lord would soften their hearts. And pray that the Lord would give you an opportunity to, to have a faith discussion, to have a discussion about Jesus. And as the Lord opens those doors... We're called to share. We're, we're called to be bold in our witness. We're called to, to share the gospel. And should the Lord save some church, it's our responsibility to welcome. Christ has welcomed us, and we, we must be hospitable, and we must welcome others, and we must equip them. We must encourage people and to say, hey, here's how you walk in faith. Here's how you grow in your relationship with the Lord. So the questions on the table as we apply this text to our lives is this. How can I grow in my love for the gospel? How can I grow personally in my love for the gospel? There's a lot of different ways that you can do that, but one way is I think we can be thankful for the grace that God gives us daily. Yes, God gives us grace and has saved us, but you know what? When we leave here, we're probably going to mess up. We're probably going to turn the wrong way. I see it. I've seen it, right? You got, we got to beat the Methodist. We got to beat the Methodist to the Golden Corral. But the Golden Corral, they're, they're renovating now. So, you know, it's an equal playing field. <laughs> anyway, I, we're going to mess up. On Tuesday, we're going to send the wrong email. We're going to do something. And, and God, who is gracious to save us, is the God who is gra- gracious to forgive us. If we're faithful and just, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So let us be thankful and let us regularly confess our sin and be thankful that we have a God who forgives. And let us be gracious to one another. I think that that helps us live out and truly love the gospel as as we are gracious and kind to one another. So how do we grow in our love for the gospel? And what is my role in the disciple-making process? Every single person here, if you are redeemed, if you're a child of God, you're given a spiritual gift. You're given a gift to serve within the church. So what is your role as a disciple-maker? Maybe you have a burning passion to evangelize. Maybe you have a burning passion to pray. Maybe you have a burning passion to teach. Whatever that is, exercise that gift. And find your place so that you can serve and be a part of this disciple-making process. So in the first two verses, the Apostle Paul calls the church to go deeper in their faith by being unified. So next, Paul practically teaches the church how they are to achieve unity, right? So you see in the first two verses, hey, be unified. Verses 3 and 4, here's how you do it. Let's read verses 3 and 4 together. 
Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So Paul gives us three steps in how to be unified. Ultimately, it's saying, hey, be humble, right? So how are we humble? Number one, we check our motives. Why are we doing something? Why are we serving in the church? We're called to do nothing from rivalry. So first, don't do something because you want to one-up somebody. You're like, oh man, this guy looks really good in the community. I need to do X to look better. No, Don't do things out of rivalry. Don't do things out of this dumb competition. And also, we're we're told not to do things out of conceit. Another way to translating this is don't seek glory for yourself. Being conceited is literally pursuing vain glory. So so we check our motives. We don't do things because we want to one-up people, and we don't do things so that we get uh, fame and notoriety for ourselves really the question we should ask ourselves is this. Am I serving, am I doing in order to feed my pride? And here's the terrible thing. No one can truly know your, your motives. That is between you and the Lord. So as you serve and as you make decisions, may our prayer always be, Lord, help me. Help me bring you praise in this. Constantly Check our motives. We, the Lord can use us regardless of our foolish or silly motives, but, but we miss fully and truly honoring the Lord if we serve out of selfish ambition. So let's check our motives. And, and next, so we check our motives, and then in, uh, we also uh, count others more significant than ourselves. So we think about others. So before you make the text, send the text, before you send the email, before you make the post, before you go live, before you do these things, you say, how are these actions going to affect other people? Is what I'm going to be doing encouraging people or tearing people down? We, we, we check what we're doing by that standard. And, and we think of others first in our decisions. Now, I know that there's going to be some people in this room, and you're hearing, hey, be selfless, be selfless, be selfless. And if you're honest with yourself, if you're honest with God, if you're honest here, you're like, man, I'm really struggling. It took me all my strength just to get here and to kind of fake a smile. And now, Dan, you're telling me to be humble, be selfless. You're telling me, like, I already feel like I'm on this level of the food chain. Like, how much lower do you want me to go, man? And and to you, here's my encouragement. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Because here's the beautiful thing. As a Christian, we were slaves to sin. We were bound for hell. We were bound for death. But God reached out, redeemed us, bought us, 
And now we are slaves to God. But here's the beautiful thing. We weren't left in that state. We are children of God. We are adopted into the family of God. In Ephesians 1, we, we are inheritors with Christ. So now we don't have to fear a funeral home. We don't have to be timid when we make our will. We, we don't have to have all of this fear and trepidation because we have a hope. We have a future. We have a life. And our life is hid with Christ above, whoever pleads for us. So Christian, in that new identity, live in boldness. Live in that grace. Live with happiness. It's okay to be happy. You know, just because we talk about sin doesn't mean we, we can't be happy. Yes, sin is wrong and we should confess that, but but God, it's, it's okay to be happy as a Christian, guys. It's okay. So find joy in our new identity in the Lord, and out of that, think of ourselves less. So check our motives, think of ourselves less. And then finally, this. The struggles of, our, of another church member are our struggles. And I would add, the joys of another church member are our joys. So if somebody's happy, they say, hey, Pastor Dan, guess what? Thank you for praying for me. I finally got that job. I'm not working third shift anymore. I don't feel like a zombie. I'm like a real human being. Thank you. I say, praise the Lord, man. I'm so glad. That's awesome. If there's church members who are weeping, if there's church members who are struggling, we weep with them. We don't have to give them answers. We're with them. We cry with them. We pray with them. And we find hope in Scripture. So, the struggles of another church member are our struggles. And the joy of church members are our joys. All of this helps us think and be humble. And... So the question that we have is, as we apply this text is this. How can I show my love uh, in the church? How can I practically love another person with no strings attached? How can I be kind to somebody and expect nothing in return? I think that that, that truly shows a Christ-like love because Christ has loved us. Christ has given us so much and we deserve nothing. And so let us be Christ-like and let us say, hey, how can I be kind and not expect anything in return? How can I love with no strings attached? You know, being humble is such a countercultural concept. So back in the day when this was written, humble was actually an insult. The Roman world used humble uh, as a term to, to identify slaves. And if we're honest with ourselves, humility is just doesn't feel natural, right? We, we don't necessarily want to be humble. So why? Why should we be humble? What's the point? Well, ultimately, we are humble because Christ was humble. In verses 5 through 8, we see the example for our humility. Let's read verses 5 through 8 together. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. All right, in order for this passage to make sense, we're going to take like a a brief 30-second commercial and talk about the Trinity. You're like, what on earth are you talking? Dan, Dan, we still got to beat the other churches, man. We got to get to, (laughs) come on. No, I promise. It'll be great. Hang in there with me. So there's three things that we want to say about the Trinity here. Number one, there are three distinct persons of the Trinity. There's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Next, each person of the Trinity is fully God. Is fully God. God the Father is 100% fully, truly God. God the Son, fully, truly God. God the Holy Spirit, fully, truly God. Now, I'm about to use a big phrase, but I'm about to define my terms, okay? So it'll help, it'll help clarify a lot of things. Within the Trinity, there is an ontological equality, but an economic subordination. An ontological equality, but an economic subordination. What on earth does that mean? Well, let me tell you. So when we talk about ontology, we're talking about the study of being, of who God is. When we talk about economy, we're talking about the activity of God, how God creates, how God redeems. That's, that's the idea that we're talking about the, in the economic trinity. So let's go back to our phrase. We have ontological equality but economic subordination. That means each God is fully God, each God is equal in their deity, but Jesus willingly chooses to submit God the Father to God the Father. God the Son willingly chooses to submit to God the Father. The Holy Spirit willingly chooses to be sent forth from God the Father and God the Son. So there is an ontological equality but economic subordination. And finally, we see that there is one God. We know that in Deuteronomy. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And it's really hard because there's really nothing in the world that's quite like the Trinity. God has not created anything in the world that is three distinct persons but one being. So what do we do with the Trinity? All of our examples, if, if we kind of push on them, they'll lead us to theological error. So what do we do? We, we, we talk about what the Bible talks about when we talk about the Trinity. We study it, we delight in it, but we're never going to fully comprehend the Trinity. And so at the end of the day, we just worship and we just delight and we, we just stand in awe of the majesty of God. And so why do I talk about it? Why do I talk about all this stuffy stuff, right? Why do I talk about all this kind of dry theological stuff? Well, we, we see this economic subordination in this text. We see uh, uh, God the Father and God the Son working together here. And so that, that is why we're, we're talking about uh, this Trinitarian. With that in mind, let's, let's look at Jesus. So let's look at verse 6 together. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. It says that Jesus was in the form of God. And you may be thinking, what on earth? Dan, you sound like you're talking out of both sides of your mouth, man. Because when I think of form, I think of like... 
this cast or, you know, this mold, and you, you make copies from that, right? Like, I, I think, so is, is Jesus like a fax? Like, is he half, like, what's going on here? And I think the ESV study Bible commentary has some really helpful notes on this. Form here means the true and exact nature of something, possessing all the characteristics and qualities of something. So to say that someone is in the form of another is to say that they are equal. So in this passage, when, when Apostle Paul uses the word form, he's affirming the deity of Christ. And it goes on, it says that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus was fully God. He was 100% God. But he held his rights and privileges as God with an open hand. Jesus is the example of perfect humility, and we see that in the next verse here. Jesus was humble in three things. Jesus was first humble in his mission. Let's read again verse 7. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. So how did Jesus empty himself? How did Jesus make himself nothing? Jesus held the rights and privileges of his deity with such an open hand that he didn't access it when it would be convenient to him. Think about it in Matthew 4 when Jesus was tempted. He would not eaten anything for 40 days. Man, if I go like four hours, let's be honest, four minutes, man, I'm, hey, I need a snack or something, you know? Got tied me over, right? Jesus hadn't eaten for 40 days. And Satan comes along and says, hey, Jesus, you know Texas Roadhouse? And he's like, you'll, you'll create it in 2,000 years, right? Those beautiful, warm, buttery rolls that come out to your table, and it's just delicious and piping hot. And then there's this little pad of butter, and it's the cinnamon butter. And you take that steak knife, and you just cut through that butter, and you spread it. Y'all, I'm about to make y'all hungry. I'm sorry. I guess I'm hungry. Something. Well, you, you know, Satan tempts him and says, you know, you could turn all of these dusty rocks into that delicious Texas Roadhouse roll. And you, you know what? Satan was right. Jesus did have the ability as God to do that. But he didn't. When Jesus was wrongly accused in Gethsemane, when he was about to be arrested, Jesus said, you know what? I could call down an army of angels and just knock all of you out. But he didn't. Jesus was fully and 100% God. And he held the rights and privileges and prerogatives of his deity with such open hands that he didn't access than when it could be convenient for him. Imagine with me for a moment that starting tomorrow, every single one of us got this new job, okay? So hang with me. We all get this new job. It pays really well, trust me. Benefits, great. Unlimited vacation time. But the dress code's really weird. Okay, so just hang with me here. We all have to shave our heads into a mohawk. It's strange, I know, but those are the rules. That's corporate. It's coming down from corporate. Now, we can dye our hair either purple or pink or blue. So that's, that's what you can do. You, can, you have this mohawk. You can dye, dye your mohawk those different colors. And then you have to wear a giant chicken suit. Full-on feathers. We'll have, we'll have different, um, you know, if you're allergic, we'll have some medicine for you. But you have to wear the feathers. 
And then you have to wear all the, the jewelry that, that, that Mr. T wore in his heyday. If you don't know who Mr. T is, Google him. Students, if you don't know, Google him. He's awesome. Okay, it's a goofy example, but hang with me. If we actually had to wear that to work, like that would be really, really stressful, right? Like that just, we'd feel uncomfortable. And it's a goofy example, but hear this. Jesus did not empty himself by losing any of his deity. He emptied himself by putting on humanity. By putting on humanity. Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Servant here could also be translated as bondservant or a seven-year slave. So back in the day, they didn't have Dave Ramsey. They didn't have college debt forgiveness, y'all. What they had was if you couldn't pay your debt, if you were over, if, if you couldn't pay anything, you had to enslave yourself to a family for seven years. And the word at the beginning of time, the creator and sustainer of the universe, chose to, to, to hold the rights and privileges of, of, of his deity with open hands. And he chose to be a servant. So Jesus was not only humble in his mission, but he's also humble in his, in his birth. In the middle of verse 7, it makes that clear. Being born in the likeness of men. You know, here in America, generally culture, um, we have a general expectation when it comes to Christmas. There's the general expectation in American culture is pretty much this. We have a tree. Now, it may look like a Charlie Brown Christmas tree, or it may look like this beautiful 10-foot ornate um, this Christmas tree. You'll have uh, some sort of Christmas dinner. Maybe it's Chinese buffet. Maybe it's just fully made and fully realized Christmas dinner. And, and you'll have presents for your kids. And that's the, if you looked at culture, you'd say, okay, that's generally what the expectation is for Christmas. And, and, and as a society, it breaks our hearts when families can't experience that, right? Like businesses will go out of their way to, to collect donations. Our church here, um, takes donations for our Christmas tree, for our angel tree project. So it breaks our heart when people don't have this beautiful, idealistic Christmas. But what type of Christmas did Jesus have? What was his first Christmas? What did that look like? He was born with a bunch of animals. He was put in a food trough. Jesus was humble in his mission. He was humble in his birth. And he was also humble in his death. He's humble in his death in verse 8. The cross was a gratuitous, visceral tool of punishment. Jesus was stripped naked, put in public, and literally nailed to a piece of wood. And was forced to suffocate to death. You know, most of us want to go out in a very peaceful way. We want, we want to go out with our family around us. And in the Trinity, there is this perfect communion. There's this perfect fellowship. And it has existed before time, and it will exist forever. But at the moment of the cross, this perfect fellowship was broken. The Father turned his face away because he could not look at the Son because the Son was bearing the weight of the world's sin. 
that Jesus was humble in his death. So why? Why go through all this? What, what's the result of all this? In verses 9, 9 through 11, we see the result of Christ's humility. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Ultimately, Jesus is brought to the lowest place and exalted to the highest place so that every being will affirm the reality of the lordship of King Jesus. In in this passage, we get this really unique, really beautiful picture of the end of time. Everyone who is living, who is in hell, who is in heaven, angels, demons, every single being will bow and confess the reality that Jesus is alive, that Jesus is well, that he is reigning and he is reigning well. And it, there's no philosophy, there's no workaround, there's no loophole, there's no ideology that can get around the truth that Jesus is Lord. And that is the beautiful picture that we see. That is the result of this gospel. That every knee will bow and every tongue confess. And ultimately, all of this brings glory to God the Father. You know, God the Father is not nervous. He's not wringing his hands. He's not worried. Oh, did I exalt Jesus too much? There's no rivalry. There's no jealousy when Jesus is rightly exalted, the Father is glorified. And when we think about that, when we look at that, we're like, well, that feels selfish. It's not. Because God truly is perfect. God the Father is, is pure. He is holy. He is above anything that we could possibly think or imagine. And, and just by his very existence, he is worthy. He is worthy of all the praise. And so it is right and it is good that everything would bring glory to God the Father. So the question on the table this morning is this. When will you bow and confess Jesus as Lord? I would implore you, I would encourage you, I would ask you, if you have not confessed Jesus as Lord, here's the great hope. If we do it on this side of eternity, we find life, we find peace, we, we are redeemed and we are bought out of death. If we realize that we are sinful people, that we are incapable of saving ourselves, that Jesus is the only way, and if we repent and confess him as Savior and Lord, our great joy, our great prize is Jesus. And he gives us life. So I would implore you to confess him now. Today is the day of salvation. Let me pray for us, and we will continue on. Father, we thank you that your word is good. God, help us to be a church that is unified and has the same love and same passion for the gospel. And may we be a church that is mobilized for your mission. God, as we work together, let us be humble. Let us extend grace to one another. 
because of the great display of humility that you have displayed for us. God, thank you. We are so unworthy. But thank you for the cross. God, guide us. Help us to celebrate the Matson family well. Help us to glorify you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.